everybody. Welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of MileMarker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of MileMarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected. Hey, Connected Advisor listeners, this is Kyle Van Pelt. We have a special episode for you today where we recorded an incredible piece of content with my co-founder at MileMarker, Judd Mackerel, and entrepreneur and residence at Great Hill Partners, John Werns. This is all about achieving organic growth for your firm in 2024. It is jam-packed with incredible insights on questions of how much of your top-line revenue should you be spending on organic growth? What about AI? I know everybody's asking questions about AI right now. We cover that topic. We also talk about what type of lead conversion ratios should you expect in organic growth? All kinds of great questions that I'm sure you're asking yourself. So stay tuned for that. As well as my personal favorite question, is podcasting a channel that advisors should be thinking about using to help leverage more organic growth? If you want to follow along with the content, there were slides and a bunch of quality visuals. You can check this out on YouTube as well. But stay tuned for a great episode here with Judd Mackerel and John Wernz, and make sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you are. Thanks for everybody's time and attention. We're gonna do this innovation office hours. Uh, we've enjoyed these, these are really fun to just kind of go through quickly through key topics, hopefully give you actionable insights you can apply to your firm. John Wernz is joining me here today. I'm excited to talk about organic growth. He and I have talked about that over the years that we've been friends, just kind of the experience we've had in our different firms. We felt like, hey, this is a great time, November 2023, as we look to 2024, how can we give some cool tips that you might be able to apply to your firm? So feel free to ask questions as we go, and we'll we'll go from here. This is a quick agenda. We're going to move fast because we know you have a lot to do in your day-to-day. So housekeeping, I'll go through that. Intro, John, answer your questions, and we'll wrap from there. So real quick, John, here's your bio. Anything you want to share that's not on the screen or uh, kind of to clarify? No, it's uh, it, it's a good overview. I mean, maybe just a quick addition. You know, I was 13 years at Wealth Enhancement Group running organic, absolutely great firm, wonderful time there. Since then, in addition to the work at Great Hill, which is a private equity firm, I help a number of fintechs that are also focused on organic growth. So I'm, I kind of can't stay away from that mass growth organic combination. And if I find it, I love to help these firms. So there's we could have had about two slides on my bio because I'm doing about 10 disparate things sometimes. So this is probably a better way to go at it. Yeah, man. It's fun. It's fun. Uh, and it's fun to see how much you can learn doing all this stuff, like all the things that are changing. Uh, a little similar, you know, I was at uh, Orion for uh, quite a while um, and started a firm called Mineral. We wound up selling that to Carson, went in and grew Carson, not to the scale of, of wealth enhancement, but but really focused on brand and tech and and as a lot, to, a lot of fun things to bring to this industry. So we'll combine our experience plus all the things we get to learn sitting on boards and serving all these companies here to to walk through these things. So four different categories today: marketing, online presence, the role of tech and AI and organic growth, 
the role of an advisor in business development, and finally, the growth strategy performance. You know, what do you need to, to do to really evaluate that? So here are the questions that you all provided to us. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for taking time. Some of you, I know who you are that put in a, but anyway, we're going to go through these questions here. I'm going to ask this to John. Since we're on a webinar, are the webinars trending down? And what are the key topics that we could be using to drive engagement? So I was also going to add as we get going, it'll be fun if we disagree on a few, Judd. So I hope I throw out an answer or two and you're like, oh, I'm sure I see it the same way. So I actually kind of hope that happens. Perfect. That'll be, it'll show that we didn't rehearse or make sure we had the same answer on everything. So yeah. our webinars trending down. My opinion is yes. Uh, I believe that they trended down significantly. And I think we all had the COVID overexposure of webinar. And you saw everyone pivot to webinars, especially firms that maybe did a lot of in-person events, did a lot of um, kind of, you know, maybe educational events. And so that's, I think it's moderated. I mean, it's not like it's a dead channel and it's not like you should run away from it. However, it's not the holy grail. So yeah. I think it has a place in most marketing plans. I don't think it's the the one, I wouldn't say it's many firms' number one producing channel. I would think that would be pretty rare from the firms I talk to. Yeah. The topics... Well, depends. A lot of the answer depends. Depends on what your firm's all about. But you know, I, as someone who worked at a comprehensive financial planning firm for years and years, a lot of it was making planning interesting. So, I mean, it was what you would expect. It was tax. It was Roth. It was Social Security. You know, even bent towards a higher net worth client. It was early retirement. It was distributions. I mean, it was those kind of evergreen topics. And then finding a way to put a cool spin on them, right? Like yeah. avoiding the tax time bomb, you know, something kind of cheesy, mm -hmm. maybe a little lead into it, but trying to put a spin on those same old topics. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I would, I would say that I'm seeing them trend down too, but I think the thing that people are forgetting is the idea of edutainment. Like most of these webinars are so boring that you wouldn't go to them. Uh, why would your client or prospect go to them? And so like, when we're competing with Netflix or live sports or whatever it is, like we have to raise the bar to be interesting. And, and think about some of the stuff that happened during COVID, where it's like, hey, I'm going to have a private chef come in and teach you how to make fajitas or something like that. Or we're going to do wine tasting or we're going to do bourbon tasting, whatever. Just some interesting things to diversify it a little bit more. And those topics are more and more shareable, one. And then two, they're going to be way more memorable than you talking about backdoor Roths for for 30 minutes. So cool. Let's go to the next question. We currently show up on Google for retirement planning near me, but not high enough. What are the best practices to increase ranking organically for certain key phrases? Oof. I mean, so now we're going into SEO, right? So we're in the search engine optimization. And, you know, it's a trickier formula. So it's not a straightforward, you know, there's not a single silver bullet. But for those who know SEO, there's a couple main steps, right? First is, is your website set up right? So, I mean, I would want to know what this person, you know, do you have, are you tagged right? Is your load time right? Is your website just operationally efficient? Then the second would be keyword strategy. So it's like they're already getting there. So it's like, what are the keywords? And, and do you really want to compete on retirement planning where everyone and their brother and sister are competing on it? Or do you want to do retirement planning in Ohio or retirement planning in Toledo? Or do you want to start to bring it down to your world? The next thing would be then is, you know, what are they doing for content? How much SEO-friendly content are you creating? And I, and I do know there's a question later on AI. We can talk about there might be some crossover there on, on clever ways to do that, but are you doing that? And then 
the last one that I was thinking about was really, I mean, do you really have your website set up for links? I mean, do you have backlinks? Do you have authority? Are you really pulling those things? And so it's a complicated answer to probably a simple question, but it, you really have to hammer those four points over and over and over again to optimize SEO. So John, I don't, do you agree with that? Do you think I got most yeah. of them? No, I think, I think you got to start with, are you actually monitoring this stuff consistently? You know, are you using HREFs or similar web or any of these tools that can monitor your, your web to understand how you're actually doing? And then are you actively progressively working to make it, make it better? And then, you know, internal links are really important. External links are really important. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. But I think if you're not understanding the scoreboard aspect of it, you're going to be looking at one-off solutions like this that are not going to ever actually fix anything. You could you could rank for that, great, but the opportunities are usually in like trying to, you know, use all of your content to uniquely be working for you. And I think your website being your single door is a is a kind of false idea. People need to be able to come through your Google business listing, your web your web through Meta, Facebook, or Instagram, all these different things need to be relevant. Even if your compliance is saying, I'm not going to let you do a lot of stuff on here, it still has to be an open door for people to start engaging with you. Totally agree. Let's see here. Next, what is the typical lead to client conversion timeline? Oh man, this was, okay, this one stumped me and it's it's another, it depends. So let's try and make it uh, as straightforward as we can. And the reason it depends is leads come in all different flavors, right? Is this for a lead who downloaded a, a guide on your website and is, you know, a high funnel lead, doesn't know anything about you, just, you know, downloaded about tax planning? Or is it someone who is closer to an appointment? So I have some issues when people ask these questions, but let me give a couple answers. I'm going to throw out a number so we can give an answer. I'm going to say it's three months. And within that, there's different cohorts, right? In any campaign, there are the people who come in and you might say, do you want to meet now? And some people say yes, and they come right through. Those are the best. We all love those. Would like a lot more of those. But then there are the people that need nurturing. In my background, I have found the average number of nurturing touch points from a lead originating to becoming an appointment can be 10 to 12 touch points. A lot of touch points, right? It's an invite to a webinar, it's a newsletter, it's a phone call, it's a direct mail piece. Could be a lot of different things, but it's a, it's a significant number. So that kind of that curve stretches out as you get through there. You know, if someone hasn't converted in three to six months, unless they have a life change, probably not going to. You know, then you you might be waiting for something to change in their life that then makes them a more ideal client. So, but I would say people who judge it fast is a mistake. That probably means they're not doing enough nurturing on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, I think it, it totally varies. I think trying to understand your averages is huge. Uh, so having proper software that actually is built for sales, you know, ironically, most people's sales force is not really doing any sales for their their wealth management business. It's generally an operation hub. So think about that and what you could do there. We see a lot of firms moving to HubSpot for marketing and sales because it does a good job with that sort of thing. And it will give you those metrics so you can continually improve them. And also understand the, the touch points that you maybe didn't think you could do that are, that are meaningful in that. And the fact is, you know, all the interactions, once somebody come, becomes like raises their hand in any sort of way of interest, whether they're looking at you only or five other firms in your area or your niche, you have to be continually 
you know, reminding them like, hey, by the way, my firm exists and we help people like you. Just that that sort of thing has to be a, a key part of this. All right. What percentage of top line revenue should firms spend on lead generation organic marketing services? All right. I'm passionate about this one. You ready? This one, this is a great question and I have a very nuanced answer. Okay, you ready? I think there's two kinds of marketing. So this, and it's a good question because they said top line revenue, right? And that would infer a top down budget. Like, hey, we're 100 million, we're going to spend 3%, we're going to spend 3 million on marketing. That's our budget. I agree with that to a point. And what I mean by that is, I think when you think of marketing for a firm, there is a level of marketing that just needs to be done, right? Do I have a good website? Do I understand my brand? Do I look professional? Am I communicating my differentiating value? Do I have my positioning right? Do I have good client communication skills? Those are kind of the table stakes layer, right? Like I think you need that, whether you're a firm that's into organic or not, you need that baseline, right? You know, all, everyone on this, on this you know, office hours needs that baseline. And to me, that's where the top down matters, right? Like, and that could be 2% because as the firm gets bigger, you might have more different areas to support. Now I'm going to switch gears. When you get into the real question, the meat of this question, which is on lead generation, I think that is a bottom-up budget. I think that is where you have to prove that it works and then scale it incrementally. So in other words, I would never say, hey, a firm should spend 7% of their 100 million, spend 7 million marketing. And it's only if it's working. And the cool thing about a bottom-up is there is no ceiling, right? I mean, if you're if you have a metric and you're hitting that metric and it could be a a client acquisition cost, a net present value, any way you're looking at it, you're hitting that metric, let's do more. I mean, there, there might be cash flow. So sorry, I'm ignoring cash flow in that answer and the payback period. But like, if that's not an issue, how high can we make it? Oftentimes in my role as a CMO, it was, how much can you spend at this level of return? Yep. That was how budgeting was done. Can you commit to delivering this efficiency ratio at what number? And so I would actually then come back with, okay, they give me the, the goal of what it costs to acquire assets, I would then have to go back and go, oh, I could do this much in this channel and this much in this channel, and it's going to move and change. But I think the number is X million and then it would come back. So so sorry for the nuanced answer, but that one's really important to me. And is, is you know, as a CMO, and I, Judd, I think you'd agree, you know, one of the uh, best ways to not get fired is to be accountable in your spend, right? That's like the, the, the you know, career advice 101 is, if you're spending a whole bunch of money on CMO and you're not sure where it's going, you know, might be okay, might not. Yeah. I would say that if you're if you're not experimenting in that bottoms up area too, like I think that's where a lot of people say, hey, we're going to do this this year. And it's just like such a pedestrian pace of change. Like you have to be continually experimenting with, with what you're doing and have margin to do that. But don't go, you have to have truly creative people you work with that are willing to pivot and willing to ask questions, willing to be accountable. And whether that's if you're in a smaller firm and that's just you, okay, that's great. You can control your own destiny. Hopefully everybody, everybody understands the expectations, but you having that, that squish budget to say, this is where we're going to really prove it and find what works. And we know we're not going to stick the landing in the first try. That's so important here. And uh, you know, I'm, I would say the first year revenue is kind of the metric I've always had of cost acquisition is a pretty good you know guide on that. But but it, it just varies. Average is 3% of gross is what firms are spending today. It's too low. Too like, low. Don't spend it, don't spend it poorly either. Spend it, be a good steward of that, but make it make it happen. How should advisors be thinking about podcasting as a marketing channel? A lot of people have podcasts, 
you know, there's there's a lot of podcasts that are super popular, especially in the financial industry. I saw Barry Ritholtz as the number two business podcast now with Masters in Business. Pretty cool. Congrats to him. It's huge for their visibility. What do you, what do you think of that, John? I have underestimated this channel repeatedly. And so just in my own, you know, awareness, it's like another one. Do we really need another one? Is is usually how I look at it. Then I watch people do them and they go pretty well. So so I, I would just say this again as a as a marketer is one I think actually is is pretty far up there. It could be done. What I will say is there are people who are good at them and there are people who are not at producing and having the aviation. And John, I'll actually use us. I wouldn't be a great person at hosting a podcast. I think very directly. I kind of think about certain things. I'm very focused. You and I were at a conference a couple of months ago and you were telling me about a blog post you were writing about being at a brewery and traveling and how it connected. And I was like, no wonder you're so good at this. Like I can see like your skill set was like, okay, like the way you were thinking that day, I'm like, there's a reason why Judge is so good at content and John's probably more of a PL guy. And it was that, it was like that interaction. So yeah. If I was the one running a firm, it might I might not do it because it's also if uh, the smaller marketing group where I was more directly involved in being the host or the content provider. It's not yeah. my it's not my expertise, and I would have to be self aware of that. Someone like you, John, but yeah. those ideas creatively just flow out. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, obviously, I'm I'm pretty biased toward like just creating unique content. I think I think that's the thing that's missing in our industry is that if we've been leaning on these marketing companies that are mostly built for broker dealers to be like the place that advisors are supposed to find traction with their marketing and it doesn't really work. Uh, You have to have unique, consistent content. The beauty is every time you talk to one of your clients or a prospect, you're probably talking through a somewhat unique scenario that's a story that you can tell and you won't violate anyone's privacy. You know, how do you solve, I live in Charleston, how do you solve tax planning for Charleston-based businesses that are in a specific like shipping sector. It's different. You're going to do a little research. You're probably doing that research already. How do you tell that story and get it out there? And the best way that I've seen today is to do a podcast because you can take that content. We did this for our own, our own show called The Connected Advisor. And we turned that into like 30 to 40 pieces of content. It's all been pre-approved by compliance. So you can send it all out and just start to reach people in all these different nooks and crannies of content. And it's, it's been exponential. We use it. We use a team at Turncast, just turncast.com to do that. And it's been, it's been huge for us in terms of the value and what I've spent prior for creating content. You know, I had full-time employees that were doing this. This is just so much better (laughs) to be able to say, Hey, the person, it doesn't have to be John. It doesn't have to be me. It has to be the person that understands, you know, the story to be told and, and will show up for 30 minutes a week. But that's it's pretty rich for for doing that. So let's keep moving. How are you yep. thinking about AI in terms of supporting organic growth today? So obviously buzzwords everywhere and excitement, nervousness. I think all of those was hitting. It reminds me a little of when the robo kind of craze hit, maybe seven eight years ago, and everyone was like, "Oh my gosh, are we all going to go to business because of robos?" Robos absolutely changed our industry, but at the same time, they were less of a direct threat, I think, than we all maybe worried about at a certain time. Uh, I see AI similarly. I mentioned one of the main usages. This is probably its its most basic usage is content creation or content refinement. And if you're thinking about creating articles or doing SEO positioning, it is a great tool, right? It can both jumpstart you and it can refine. And I use it sometimes it's like, 
kind of have this idea and I need to refine it and get it into, a, I need a, I need a, almost like I'm bouncing it back and forth way. And it gives me, it's almost like having that copywriter to work with where I can be back and forth and give me ideas. One cautionary note that I've seen when people are using AI for a lot of content creation is, is don't lose your brand voice. You know, sometimes it, you know, as well as you can put stuff into any AI tool, I would argue the brand voice gets muted and that it's important to, in the final edit, in the final, make sure that it doesn't read like an AI wrote it, like you yeah. wrote it, like your firm wrote it. Yeah, that's that's a good call. Yeah, I think obviously it's a tool, it's part of it, but doesn't it doesn't do all of it. It doesn't know your clients, it doesn't know you that well. And I think that's always going to be somewhat the case, but you should absolutely be looking at it and considering how it's going to change your your firm. We're seeing firms start to use it to analyze their data and the data warehouse to build. It's, it's super cool to see that. But also, the funny thing about this, when I read this question first, is like, I had a question with some, I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and we used the word AI two different, totally different ways. One, we were talking about AI, like the beginning of this question. And then two, we were talking about alternative investments. And so like, but... The the thing here is they actually are both really good on organic growth because like ultra high net worth people are interested in alts. How do you use the AI over here to help you attract with a message around the AI over here? It's just kind of a funny thing that I'm seeing more and more in my day-to-day conversations that might be worth the consideration. And one, before you flip, you know, sometimes people say AI, and then I also want to talk about predictive analytics and predictive analytics has been around for a long time. And I think sometimes it's now called AI, right? Yeah. Or machine learning or different. So there's a slide of what really is AI because predictive analytics, if you want to broaden the definition of AI to include predictive, then you're like, well, oh my gosh, can we predict attrition? Can we predict unhappy clients? Can we predict for a new lead, which advisor it should go to based on data, based on connections, based on you know LinkedIn and personal and Zoom and all of the cool things you can do? That's, you know, is that AI? Probably, but- I would argue that's been around for the last, that idea has been around for the last five years, even when we were calling it AI. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to get a lot more clear about the underlying components of what AI is here in the next few years. It'll be fun to see how that comes out. How do we best enable our tech stack? How can this help prompt growth within our firm? John, this is well, I, I might kick this one back to you if there's an expert on this, it's you. So I'll do my best stuff give you something to chew on, but I think, again, you're, you're uniquely qualified to answer this. I mean, again, there's a, there's a stage of firm answer. You gave, you actually stole one of my answers a little bit, which was, you know, these, usually when firms are growing to organic growth, it starts manual, right? They're tracking things on a whiteboard or an Excel or in a homegrown something. And then there's kind of the stage two, which is, okay, we're going to actually start automating our marketing. And that's where HubSpot comes in. And I'm sorry to use HubSpot a lot, but it is a great entry-level tool for sales and marketing. I mean, it is, there are others to consider, but HubSpot is the one that comes up over and over again and firms are happy with. You can also, at some point, outgrow HubSpot, where depending on the complexity and the size of your business, HubSpot may not quite serve it. That said, just absolutely love that tool. And I'll kick it to you before maybe we can come back and finish the second half after that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think really it, there's so much about your technology you have that is like, it's so subjective because how how skilled are the people that you have to run it? And that's not a slight against them. They might their highest and best use might not be sitting and understanding the latest features that your portfolio accounting or planning or trading systems would have. 
they're better to spend time with your clients. And, and if you see any trends here in this industry, it's that the aggregation effect is really trying to help re-point advisors back to their clients, hopefully, if, if success happens. The best firms are doing that so that the technology can be more automated, more streamlined, more professionalized inside their business. So the thing that we see a lot, we have a services business that, that does this, is like, we'll, we'll go in, we'll send a team there, and they'll actually go through and make sure, one, do the team, does the team understand what they have? Two, do they have the right thing? And then the three, how do they professionalize this and scale it? And how do they, like things like fee billing, like a lot of people are not doing fee billing very optimally or very properly. And it creates a ton of downstream stress inside the firm. Same with all the different workflows that you have. So there's a lot of work that just, you need to, you need to do that. You need to tune up if nothing else. And sometimes you need to say, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. Can we have a partner run that for us? There's, there's all sorts of scenarios there, but I think it starts with really just the intentionality to go out and say, hey, let's get a tune up and understand what, what are we working with and how can we get better uh, for all that stuff. So John, hand it back to you on, on growth. Totally. I'm going to do one other quick, yeah, on that ideas. I believe firms that I, you know, I, I have the benefit through different board work and advisory work talking to a lot of different RAs. I would say where I see an underinvestment in technology in their tech stack is not always in the marketing area. It's actually in the phone area or the scheduling area, or what does it take to get a lead into an appointment? And those are the areas where I see people like, well, we don't, I'm like, how long, do, how long does it usually take you to get to a lead? And they, you know, they don't know. Most firms don't know. That's actually a key stat. That's a key stat as you're maturing your tech stack to know that, whether you have a dialer or a way of tracking your outbound or a way of tracking your different efficiency metrics, super important in the tech stack. And I think a theme you'll hear from me this call and you know in the industry is people are under leveraging their focus on conversion. So that's yeah. just that is a I think that is a theme in the industry. And you know, I actually would argue producing leads is not the problem. It's converting leads. If if you want to get into that group of proven organic growers, it's that's actually a harder step than it is to produce the lead. The second question, how can this help prop growth within the firm? You know, so all the stuff John and I talked about, I'd also just say visibility. I mean, you know, marketing is some, sometimes people kind of think it's witchcraft or like there's you know, client journeys and we have prospecting journeys and we have all this cool stuff. When you show the people in your firm, the work that goes through and the content to convert and then how it outcomes, it seems like people kind of jump on board where then they are like, oh, it's not just a hustle. It's not witchcraft. It's like, wow, that's really impressive. And so a lot of times you're actually selling the people who are going to be working that lead you know, the advisors or the business development people who are going to be working that lead, letting them see a robust process gives them a lot of confidence. Yeah. I would say, yeah. And on the idea of like just scheduling, making that better. If one, if, if you're not the best call that person has that day, that's a problem. Like make it, make the experience better. Microsoft Teams is not a good experience. I think everybody that can, is honest with themselves can understand that maybe Zoom's better. Maybe something else is better. But you have to be looking for better, especially for your clients. And then two, the scheduling experience, is that as easy as it possibly can be? If it's clunky, you need to keep pushing in on why it is and how it can be better. Because for growth, like, yeah, you've got to be the easiest, conver- easiest, best conversation that person's had that day. I think that is a, that is a easy goal to have. In achieving it's not so easy, but I, I definitely think you can get there. All right. Next question, is it more effective to have dedicated business developers or 
you know, salespeople, for lack of a better word, rather than assigning business development responsibilities to advisors. So you saw me perk up at the budget question. I perk up at this one. I perk up at all of it. But this one gets me as well. Because it is something I think that's actually happening in our industry and is a major shift that's happening. As more and more RIAs grow and have more internal resources to focus on growth, you're seeing an increase in marketing, but you're also seeing an increase, as I mentioned before, in conversion. So you heard me say the conversion focus. And that has to do with both two steps of conversion. There's a step from lead to appointment, and then there's appointment to client. There's two steps of conversion in my simplified model that we all go through to get a new client. This is really addressing, I'm going to say the second part of it is, okay, we have a lead or we have an appointment. How does that become a client? Let's be honest, when you're a small growing firm, as we've all been a part of, I've been a part of you know, a smaller firm, you know, we couldn't just run around and hire expensive BD resources, which is not an option. Like it would, I would have loved to have done it. It just wasn't going to work. So at that time, in that part of the maturation cycle, it was, no, we need to find a couple hungry advisors who have the right skill set and the right time balance to be able to go do this and that. And that is the right phase for many companies, RAs that are earlier in developing organic. Once you're hitting organic and, and so then that, you know, that advisor does it, what you might find is that advisor develops a bigger book, depending on your service model, they get busy. Now all of a sudden they're not as hungry as they once were. They're not chasing the leads relentlessly. They're, they've got other stuff to do. Then you have to find a different person. You have to find a different person. That's a hard, that's the time where it's, it's ready to consider. Let's bring in a BD resource because I'm filling up with these programs enough. It's time to bring someone in and firms are having great success with this. I mean, it's been a kind of a staple of the custodial or pro programs for people that are familiar with Schwab and Fidelity's pro programs and, and old TD. And I'm seeing a lot more of it, actually the COI or center of influence realm. Specifically, firms are bringing people in, they're saying, you know, create a structure for me to work with CPAs. Don't just, you know, give the advisors some tools, like actually go create an event together. Let's do a shared event. You bring 10 clients, I bring 10 clients, you do content, I do content. We do it compliantly. We do it. We understand the outcome of this, but the goal is we are sharing clients for our mutual benefit and that the clients also feel that. So, so I'm a big fan of doing it, but again, it, it is a natural step in the maturation of a growing firm to consider it. And if you're a smaller firm, it's probably not the time. Yeah, that makes sense. And the one thing I would say, in addition to what you said, is that the transition to going and adding professional staff for business development is really hard. And the mistake I've seen people make is for the original person, the rainmaker for the business, a lot of times it's the founder, for them to say, here's the keys, go grow my business. It, it, that's, you know, time, as much as you want to do that, these people have to eat and breathe the same air and food as you for quite a while so they can understand and really get it. And once that once they do, that'll be great. And you, obviously, it's a risk. That person could could be good. They could be bad. You usually try to hire people into on sales. That's a great tip. And you're just continually working to make that better. Be super clear, super intentional. But it's going to spend. You're going to spend, you know, five to seven times the amount of time to to teach the task that it takes to do the task. And you just got to understand that as a general rule. But that will really transform your business over time, but it's it's not an immediate thing. How many clients should an advisor work with and still have time for business development activities? How should time break down? 
Uh, well, that's it's good. This one uh, fell out of the previous question, so I think they're they're you know yeah. very closely linked. It depends on the service model. I mean, you know, a lot of teams are using the diamond model. There's different ways that that teams are structured for efficiency. Um, I do think inherently there is a goal, though. If and this isn't true of every team, but if you call it the lead of the team, you know, assuming that there's a client service person or an operational person or an investment person or, or whatever the rest of the team looks like is the best at converting business. The goal is then to get the servicing as they can to someone else. And so when you say how many clients, I mean, can it be 150? Can it be 250? I mean, those are the ranges I would think of. But again, it depends on the handoff model within it and how much time they can do it. The other thing is, it says, how, how should the time break down? This is my experience. As advisors know, there's many on this call or we work with them or we partner. Advisors are stubborn, right? I mean, Certain advisors are programmed to business develop and certain ones are not. And they may have inherited a book. They may have uh, worked at a firm that transitioned to them a book. They may have had you know a certain lead flow. But I'm a fan of, it's hard to change those people, man. I mean, good luck. Like you're going to make the person who doesn't want to give 20% of their time to BD, make them do 20%. Yeah. It takes a heck of a coach to get that one done. Similarly, the people who can't help but rain make and do it will find the time. And I would love to tell you in my experience over time, I've been able to change advisors. You can nudge them. You can have financial incentives. You can have coaching, but they're going to go at some point. They're going to go where that you can only lead the willing. It was a great, yeah. a great saying I heard. And you can only change them so much. So yeah. yeah, I would say the more, the better is my answer, but realize who you're working with. Yeah. I mean, one, one example I guess I would share is I've, I think that Stephanie Bogan's done a good job with Limitless and how they think about the structure of your time. I've spoken at her events a couple of times and I was always, always surprised to like how clear and, and granular she made it, but how much freedom that created. Because, you know, one day a week is develop, de- developing your business, growing your business. One day is working in your business, but in the middle is your client time, your three days. And then also, I think there's a big emphasis on surge meetings too, to like be able to just pack that mm-hmm. in. You have to always just ask your question, ask the question to yourself, like, what life do I really want? Because <laughs> uh, you can scale this all up and you can have 300 clients per advisor, but good night. That's a lot of responsibility. And, you know, just, just thinking about that, there's some, there's some interesting challenges there. All right. What results do you need to see to show that you have successful organic growth happening or a successful strategy happening? You know, I, my background before Wealth Enhancer Group, I worked for an agency and we worked with many clients and one of our largest clients was Fisher Investments. And Fisher did a great job of marketing. And people would always say, what was the secret? What did Fisher do, continues to do in, in a nice job so well? My answer was, there's a couple of things. One is they're really good marketers, right? I mean, they're, they're really good at both generating and targeting and converting. And they have done that for, for decades and continue that. But there was two other things that they did that not every one of us could do. One was they were able to, I re- referenced earlier, to cash flow, right? They were able to spend ahead knowing that the return would come. So, and in that, the second part of that is that meant they often had, I, this is, you know, other firms, bigger firms have a higher allowable because they know that that money is going to come back. So were they the best marketers or did they really understand their model in a way that I think the, the the industry is catching up to now that they knew what they could really spend. And in some cases, that was more than other people were willing to spend. For example, yeah. you get a million dollar client, they come in, you're charging 1%, you got 10,000. Some advisors would say that's expensive, $10,000 for that client. Some would say that's the steal of a lifetime. And I think it's the steal of a lifetime. 
So if you look at the net present value and retention and lifetime value of that account, I think it's a steal of a lifetime. So what result do you need to show? You need to show a payback. And I like to do it in a period of years. You could say, you know, it's a two-year payback. It's a three-year payback. That's usually the window that I would say most firms are thinking in terms of payback. And be super calibrated with that across your firm. Um, and make sure that that everyone agrees. Like if we can get the clients at this level, at this rate, would we do that more and more assuming cash flow works? Yes. Okay, great. And having that kind of alignment across the firm is key to any marketer being successful. And even back to that budgeting question, Judd, we talked about it's like, I would get the question was like, how much can you spend at this efficiency level, at this payback level, at this net present value? That was the bottom up level of the budget. And that's where it is there. So I would say, again, I run into firms it's like, I would never pay, pay that 10,000 for a million dollar client. And while I rub my temples a little bit on that, that's how they run their firm. And they probably run a great firm, maybe not an organic growth firm, but a really tight firm. Yeah, no, I think the thing about it is there's a lot of people that are in this industry and want to grow their businesses, but they're not like treating it as a serious business to grow their business. I'm not trying to say that as a slight, but when I spend time with the Fishers and the Edelmans and 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 folks like that, like it's serious business and and figuring out the right angles. Like how do I buy aftermarket ads on channels where my ideal client profile is spending time? That's a core thing Fisher does. Um, and they're buying it in bulk. They're able to negotiate rates and they're able to like really go in there and do that shrewdly, that's that's just good business. There's nothing underhanded about it. It's just it's just doing that and understanding what you should do. And that just takes focus and, and the right people that that know that ultimately their role is results driven. And if you're coming in and marketing you're, and you're just an administrative person, which unfortunately a lot of people get in that seat, I'm like, hey, can you make a new stationery for this? Can you get my business cards? I'm like, well, yeah, I can do that. But you know, let's go grow the business. Give me help to, to do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, th- there's a big dichotomy, I'd say, that I've seen on that. So my buddy, Tim, asked about an aftermarket ad. What is that? Do you have a good definition on that, John? You go first and then I'll pile on it. Because I, I, yes, yeah, so yeah. it's what I did. It's what I did for about 10 years before, uh, before Wealth Enhancer Group was working in that space. So these are these are ads where it's like, undersold or or they're they're really they're ad the ad placements that are probably going to go to like some house account or something like that unless you get a proper buyer in there so it's it's you can buy for next to nothing on some of these things it still costs money but like mm-hmm. understanding like what is what is the cost to advertise in this particular form and all the different the varieties of different places that your your ideal client is seeing that you know, this is a lot of like, you know, it's like daytime TV. It's like, you know, it's late night TV. It's understanding even now, now you can buy because all the TV is web-based. You can buy in the small segments of like an audience of 3000 people in this little town, like maybe Woodstock, Georgia is a great example, Tim, of like where I could really focus my efforts and do that at a low cost at a specific time. That's kind of how I think about aftermarket. And yeah, because it's not like if you go to the TV station and say, hey, I want to advertise on your station, you're going to get, you're going to pull, pay full freight for all of that stuff. And you don't have to, there's, there's a better way to do that. I agree. So my background before uh, Wealth Enhancement Group was working in a firm that specialized in, in aftermarket, also termed remnant, also termed direct response media. And it is exactly what Judd said. I mean, if you go into 
to a TV station or a cable network and say, I want to buy, they're like, here's the rate. The rate is $1,000. There is usually programs. You may have to work with an agency or for someone else to access. You might be able to get that same space for $100. And that is that is remnant or direct response media. And you give up some, you might give up a fixed placement, you might give up the prime ad, but at the end of the day, you can buy media at a significant discount. Paying rate card media is usually an activity done by branding companies, not as much companies who are seeking a specific ROI, just to generally split the two. So if you see an ad from a uh, that has a call to action of a website or an 800 number, likely was not a premium ad buy, was probably an aftermarket or remnant ad buy, likely. Yep. yep. All right. We're going to the home stretch, guys. Here we go. All right. How much time should you give a strategy to see if it is working before you adjust it or terminate it? You know, I like to think in the world of stage gates. So what I mean by that is I'm assuming we're talking about some form of a marketing campaign, organic growth to get clients. So you spend some money on something, let's, it could be digital ads, right? Could be. So there's usually a range of success, meaning if I'm getting leads between, you know, zero and a hundred dollars, I'm pretty happy. And if it's a hundred to 500, it's going to be really tough to hit that payback. And if it's 500 or more, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just flushing money away. So there's kind of a stage gate there. The next stage gate would be, you're starting to look into that conversion funnel that we talked about that zero to three months. How many of these are actually becoming appointments? Do I have my nurturing set up? Am I seeing that? So I think you want to have a goal when you start, and then you kind of have, you know, I've been surprised. Campaigns always look different than I think. But you want to think, do I still have a chance at success? Is it moving the way through the funnel that I think I have a chance at success? Adjusting? I'm a tinkerer. So I would guess some people I've worked with previously that the teams I've had the good fortune would probably say I tinker too much. I love tinkering. So you should probably wait a little longer. But yeah, that said, I'm like, let's go. I, I, I've been always a little more of a gut marketer, even though I'm an analytic. It's like, if I don't like how something looks, it's like, let's make a change. And I probably err on doing that a little too much, I would say. No, I mean, I would say the best marketers are salespeople dressed in marketing clothes because we're always thinking about like, am I going to get real revenue for the firm? If I'm not thinking about that and I'm just romantic about ideas, I, I should go work in the creative department. I shouldn't be like really calling the shots on uh, what's happening. And there's nothing wrong with either side, to be clear, but you just need to have the right people mm-hmm. in the right seats. But yeah, I, I think you're right, John. I just think you got to be in, involved in it. And you know, you need to understand because what happens with good, when marketing starts to take off, it creates problems in sales. Because then you realize the sales folks aren't ready to call quickly. Well, guess what, guys? We're going to call. We're going to be in front of these people. We're going to be available. And it just creates these things. They're not, you can think about, about them as problems, but they're really just opportunities uh, for us to all get better. And if we're not in there continually adjusting, we might miss those windows where you're going to all of a sudden have breakthrough success. And, and that's been my experience anyway. All of a sudden we find it, we're like, all right, go. Let's go. Let's let's 10x our spend on this because now we know we can do it. And now we're going to have to 10x our hiring pace to bring in the right people to do this and train them. But that's that's what we're here for. That's that's the challenge we get to go after. And Judd, I've made that mis- a mistake in what you just said so many times in my career, where it's like, oh my God, this new channel is working. Let's go. And I haven't fully thought, okay, what is that going to do to this stage of the funnel? What is it going to do? And all of a sudden, You've got too many leads. And if you have too many leads, you don't convert them at the same rate. And all of a sudden your metrics go. And I 
I can't tell you, I mean, I've done it multiple times. It's like, I got to know better than to get excited and just hit the gas when yeah. I do not have the full process ready to take it. Yeah, it's a fun challenge. All right, next question. What new or seldom used strategies are worth considering or researching? Could go a lot of different ways with this one. The one that I'm, I'm really excited about, and I am, I am an advisor to a firm in this space, is around testimonials, actually. And with the new guidance and the new rules, I do think there is a great window for firms to do this and do it compliantly, not risk a speeding ticket, not, not put themselves out there too much. Um, and I'm seeing an increase in firms who want to do that and want to do it on their own platform and do it through Google reviews. And so I do think there is some low-hanging fruit there that for the first time you could wait in without the fear of getting, you know, with, with a lower risk profile than perhaps, you know, historically when people were there. But I would also say if you're going to wait in, make sure you know the rules because how you ask, how you screen, how you're put, how you're choosing which ones to use still matters. And it is an important matter. So that would be that would be one area. A second area is I mentioned a little when we talk AI and predictive, but I'm seeing some some cutting edge work out of some of the larger RAs on matching leads to the right advisor through whether you want to call it AI or predictive analytics and big data. And what that looks like in execution is if a lead comes in, sure, there's a demographic. You know, maybe it's maybe it's male, female, maybe it's geographic, maybe it's age, maybe it's expertise, of course. But there are also ways now to use the data to be like, oh my gosh, this prospect has seven Facebook friends and five LinkedIn friends and lives a mile from my sister. Like, and, and while you have to be careful in how you use that data compliantly, your odds of converting a client go way up. And so I, you're, you're starting to see the big firms really look into like, there was a smarter way to match prospect to multiple advisor. And it's not just the basic two or three things. It's actually a much more exciting interaction and in firms are starting to prove that close rates go up when you can do that well. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a whole new frontier of like high net worth data and understanding, you know, who can I target? We saw today HubSpot purchased Clearbit. That's a huge deal. That's going to change a lot of B2B. You're going to get a lot more targeted emails from folks that are selling you solutions as advisors from that. And, you know, it's it's just a new frontier. And I think we have to be always looking at how can I use data and insight for me to have right fit, the right offer, to even challenge the things I'm offering to like reshape my service model, potentially. There's, there's a lot of things that we just need to be willing to, to think about and consider. So let's wrap up. Appreciate everybody's time today. John, what are three things advisors can do right away to improve and accelerate the organic growth? The first one, I think we should touch on this is, is have a plan, write it down. And my preference is a document, not a PowerPoint. That's just, that's just where I come from. What are you trying to accomplish in the next three months, six months, 12 months? What are you, what are you going to test? Where are you trying to go? What resources do you need? Just, just write it down. Even if it's just for you, even if it's not a shared document for the organization or the CEO or the rest of the marketing folks, write it down and hold yourself accountable because the tyranny of the day today gets in everyone's way. And sometimes you forget to pull the levers that are actually going to make a difference. So I, number one is just write it down. Even if it's like, I'm going to start tracking them, write it down. Like it doesn't matter if it's the super advanced plan or the, we're just putting the toe in the water plan. That's a big one. Second one, which was a theme you heard from me, which is, is focus on conversion. You know, I'm making an argument that I believe it is possible for almost every firm to find leads, whether they're using third-party solutions like Smart Asset, DataLine, Zoe, there's great firms out there. You're doing your own digital, you're getting whatever that, you know, different programs. You're going to get some leads, 
the question is not, can you get those leads? It's, can you actually create a funnel to convert them? And I know the funnel is a little tired in terms of current marketing world because we've moved beyond it, but it is true. It's like, can you get those leads to appointments and clients? To me, that is the larger question for most RAs thinking about doing organic. And how do you structure your marketing and sales? Who owns it? How do you, do you have the tracking in place to do it? So that would be the second one. And that leads into the third one, which is track. Every firm that I know from the, the top of the mountain to the firms just getting started need to do better at tracking. They all do. It never ends. There's no such thing as this firm has it nailed. And so working with your tech integration, working to understand, move ahead your tracking. It's, it's, it should be on everyone's list and it probably is. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. That's great. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. Here's our two emails. Uh, you can hit our main inbox here at MileMarker. My email is also just judge, A-U-D at MileMarker.code. Happy to have you reach out to me there. Uh, John, uh, your email here at uh, Great Hill Partners is available. We will publish yep. these slides. Thank you all for hanging out with us today. Uh, we appreciate your time and hopefully it was enriching to you as you plan out 2024. Judd, thanks for having me again. This was so much fun. I love hanging out with you guys and always impressed with what you do. Thanks, man. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.